Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. In The Doors of Perception, Aldous Huxley described his trial of mescaline as the most extraordinary and significant experience available to human beings this side of the beatific vision. His exegesis was preceded by the synthesis of the hallucinogen LSD by Sandoz chemist Albert Hoffman in 1938 and followed by Hoffman's extraction of psilocybin from the mushroom psilocybin mexicana in 1959. The convergence of scientific research and natural substances historically used by indigenous peoples in healing and religious rituals sparked interest in what the British psychiatrist Sir Humphrey Osmond termed psychedelic, Greek for mind manifesting drugs. Excitement over psychedelic drugs led to extravagant claims about their vast potential to expand human consciousness, elucidate the psychological architecture of the brain and treat mental disorders. By the mid 1960s, LSD had been prescribed to approximately 40,000 patients in the US and spawned over a thousand scientific papers. However, recreational use of these drugs encouraged by countercultural icons like Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey spread and appeals to tune in, turn on, drop out, propelled unsupervised use to leapfrog medical research. People experiencing bad trips as a result filled emergency rooms. Psychedelics were linked to notorious figures like Charles Manson and also the nefarious CIA agency funded uh, interrogation program, MKUltra. And this led to the government in 1973, reclassifying them as schedule one drugs so they were unable to be used for the most part for the next 40 years for research or clinical purposes. But recently through the efforts of dedicated advocates in their organizations and innovative startup companies eager to invest in the next psychopharmaceutical revolution, we're experiencing a second coming, hence today's podcast on Shrink Speak. We have with us to discuss this exciting and extraordinary opportunity, two people who have been in the forefront of this movement. Dr. Rick Doblin is the executive director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which he founded in 1986. MAPS is a nonprofit research and education organization leading the way in psychedelic drug research. And Dr. Stephen Levine is currently the vice president of patient access at Compass Pathways, a UK-based organization conducting clinical trials with psychedelic therapy for treatment-resistant depression in Europe and the North America. He also founded Actify Neurotherapies, one of the largest networks of ketamine treatment centers in the US. So Rick and Steve, thank you for being with me today on Shrink Speak. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let me uh, start with uh, you, Rick, by asking, you know, how you sort of took on this mission. Uh, I mean, I, I may be uh, appropriately or inappropriately thinking of you as a latter-day Timothy Leary, but in a good sense. Um, you, know, you are a psychologist, and you do uh, have the uh, educational pedigree from Harvard, so you come by these bona fides naturally or appropriately. But uh, how did you how did you come into this as sort of a, a mission? I mean, it's your profession, but it's also you know, more than that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say first off, I'm not a psychologist. I have an undergraduate degree in psychology, but my master's and PhD is in public policy. But I have trained with Stan Groff in psychotherapy. And I would say that how I came upon this is that, that I had one sort of differing perspective on your introduction, which was basically psychedelics went wrong during the 60s because of recreational use, and therefore there was a backlash. And I think that's 
all that's true. That did happen. But I think the cause of the backlash was psychedelics going right and people having these beyond ego states, the sense of connection beyond their nationality, their religion, their race, their gender, and then getting involved in challenging the status quo, in particular challenging the Vietnam War, working on the environmental movement, the civil rights movement, uh, the women's rights movement. And then we have as confirmation for my theory that it was psychedelics gone right, causing people to challenge the status quo, we have John Ehrlichman's statement about how the Nixon White House had two main enemies, the civil rights movement and the hippies. And since they couldn't criminalize protests, they could criminalize the drugs that they use and they could go after them. And then Ehrlichman said, did we um, exaggerate the risks of drugs? Of course we did. And we knew that, that these were enemies. We can arrest them, disrupt their meetings, arrest their leaders. So I think it was psychedelics going right. And, and how I got this into this was 19... 71 and 72, after the Controlled Substances Act and after the backlash of 1970, where I took psychedelics for the first time and had this sense that, you know, my bar mitzvah didn't turn me into a man. We're talking about today being Rosh Hashanah. My bar mitzvah did not turn me into a man. The outside rituals didn't work, but I felt like the psychedelics engaged those same kind of existential questions that I wish my bar mitzvah had helped me to address. And, and I saw, I got into this for political reasons. I felt that we're killing people in Vietnam, we're, we're prejudiced, the Holocaust, we're potentially blowing up the world with the Russians, that we have all of these kind of um, senses of us and them. And if we could have more people have this sense of us, meaning everybody, that that's the antidote to racism, to genocide, to uh, nuclear war, to environmental destruction. But it was reading Stan Groff the realms of the human unconscious in 1972, where I saw that not only was he looking at a scientific lens at spiritual experiences that often would be looked at from this religious context, but he was doing it, I thought, in a less encumbered um, scientific lens, not so encumbered by science, by culture, and our religion is the best one. But he had it wrapped into a reality testing, which was psychotherapy. Could we help people to actually have these range of experiences and then get over depression, get over alcoholism, get over heroin addiction, get over traumas, uh, fear of death, all these things. And so it was that combination of therapy from um, a reality testing point of view and then studying spirituality and being able to access those states of mind through psychedelics, but again, looked at through a scientific perspective. So it was political and therapeutic and my own personal experiences that got me into this. So um, I'm going to get into it right now before turning to Steve. Um, and here's where the pointy-headed scientist meets the social activist. Um, so you see this really as a uh, means for uh, constructive, positive, you know, almost a utopian social change. Well, I, I was you when you say utopia, that means I'm an idiot, you know. No, I, no, 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 because no, 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 I, but I'm I mean, just saying that, that that's the connotations of so. But but I, I do want I, we should all the, the whole thing is repair of the world. The whole thing about what every Jew should be doing is teshuva, teshuva. Yeah, teshuva, tikkun olam. Yeah, and that's a utopian vision. We should be aiming at a utopian vision. But but I don't think that psychedelics alone. What I do think is that culture is more important than psychedelics. So if you look at some of these ayahuasca churches that use ayahuasca all the time, they're homophobic, they're patriarchal, 
they're hierarchical, they're, they're, they're sort of syncretic religions with the Catholic church. You know, they've had to do that to survive. So I think culture is more important than psychedelics, but I do think that psychedelics are part of building a utopia. Yes. And uh, I, I certainly understand that. And, and uh, also, uh, I will disclose for the listening audience, uh, as you know, Rick, I have lived experience. So I share your experience and also your positive attribution of, of that. So in the sense, then, is it fair to say that the uh, efforts to develop psychedelics for FDA approved uh, medical indications is really only part of the uh, the goal and their potential utility. And it, it really is, in some sense, ultimately, maybe even the least or the smallest uh, role that they can play in, in terms of uh, society and, and humanity. That's completely fair. Yeah. And, and very insightful, because what, what I really believe is that every human has a fundamental human right to explore their consciousness with psychedelics, with anything and with other drugs as well. The drug war is a fundamental violation of human rights. And most people do not have a formal diagnosis of PTSD, depression, anxiety, but we all have lower level challenges just to, to live and read the newspaper and know what's going on. And so our goal and what distinguishes us from Compass and from other groups is that we have a two-pronged strategy. One is drug development, and then the other is drug policy reform to try to create context for people for personal growth, for spirituality, for couples therapy, things that are not diseases that FDA is gonna approve. So you could say that medicalization is in and of itself has to be evaluated on the basis of the most rigorous science, the FDA protocols, all of that, but it is only a partial step towards the access that we would like to make available in our culture and around the world. And that the transformation of mass mental health that's our larger goal, and not just treating limited um, psychiatric uh, DSM conditions. Steve, uh, now you are a physician, but also working in the private sector, uh, have an orientation towards the necessary process of developing products for public use, uh, in this case, in the context of healthcare. So um, you have decided to focus on this particular area, meaning psychotropic or psychopharmaceutical drug development, but with a unique uh, and really first-in-class uh, form of substances. But you bring a much more focused commercial, you know, sort of economic sort of orientation to it. Is that correct? First of all, let me say, uh, you know, I'm sitting here listening to Rick and really honored to be a co-guest with you. Uh, you know, you're, you're a luminary in this field. You are quite a famous person. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not fit to carry your jockstrap, as they say. <laughs> no. uh, you know, listeners will be tuning in here and saying, wow, Rick Doblin's on. And then who the hell is Steve Levine? But uh, <laughs> so with that out of the way, you know, yeah, I come from this from, I guess, the perspective of mainstream psychiatry. I'm a psychiatrist by training. Uh, I trained at your sister institution, Weill Cornell, a uh, very traditional psychiatry training program, and then did a fellowship across the street at Memorial Sloan Kettering and trained as a psycho-oncologist. And, you know, where this started for me was I was in private practice. I was taking care of patients primarily with psychotherapy, but prescribing medicine sometimes feeling pretty dissatisfied and disillusioned with our menu of options though. 
And so working within mainstream psychiatry, I started to kind of push on the walls a bit. And that was with repurposing low doses of intravenous ketamine for psychiatric indications. And, you know, I started treating a lot of patients there and, you know, it proved to be a very interesting tool. And ultimately another form of it wound up getting FDA approval a few years ago. But, you know, I was still dissatisfied because, because it wasn't, you know, really through the straight up the middle path of psychiatry. It wasn't FDA approved for the specific indications that I was prescribing it for, therefore wasn't covered by insurance. I was really concerned about the lack of access for patients to new therapies for people who weren't able to benefit from currently available first-line treatments. You know, so that got me interested in the FDA-approved form of ketamine, but then that had its limitations too, and that really has had a troubled path to getting to patients. And so, you know, that's why I really am excited about the way that we approach things at Compass Pathways, which I know there's multiple perspectives around this, but, uh, you know, we've decided really to focus on a medical regulatory route, primarily so that there is insurance coverage and as, as a way to hopefully achieve broad and equitable access to patients. And to this point, that regulatory route, that FDA approval route has been required by most payers, but you know, it goes beyond that. Just getting FDA approval doesn't mean that payers, that insurance, insurers are gonna cover this. They're gonna to wanna to know things about longer term outcomes. They're gonna to wanna to know about comparative effectiveness against current antidepressants and, and other treatments for other indications for which you may get FDA approval. And so it's it's still gonna be a tough path, but it's, it's the one that we're trying to pursue in order to try to make sure that treatments get to as many patients as can benefit from them. Does it uh, trouble you in any way that this um, class of substances are being uh, developed? Uh, and again, you know, with the caveat that in terms of FDA approved medical indications, that's a small part of how these substances can benefit uh, humanity. But in terms of that, does it trouble you that these substances are being developed in a way which is really wholly anomalous from the way other therapeutic uh, pharmaceuticals are developed within the healthcare field, meaning that um, the companies that are involved in their development are largely smaller, newer companies that were created uh, specifically or predominantly to develop uh, these substances. And that also, if you look at the NIH reporter website, you'll find hardly any funded research in the area of psychedelic drugs. So these are coming really uh, through a back door or through a, a, an alternative route of development. Um, they still have to measure up in terms of the FDA and meet other regulatory type standards, presumably, but uh, clearly they're different than is the usual way of developing uh, therapeutic agents. Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think that big pharma, if you will, the large pharmaceutical companies aren't necessarily famous for taking on excessive risk and taking risk hasn't necessarily paid off for them in the past. Uh, I think there's, there's good reason why we haven't seen a ton of innovation in the development of new treatments for psychiatric indications in the last several decades. Uh, I think, you know, there've been some, some pretty famous and expensive examples of late stage trials of new psychiatric compounds failing. Uh, and, and I think that's really disincentivized 
the larger pharmaceutical companies to take that kind of risk. And it's why, you know, if you look at the, the global pipeline of development, the, the pipeline of, uh, of new antidepressants is about 0.2% of the total drug pipeline. And so I think it's not surprising that we're seeing some smaller companies that are willing to take some more risks, you know, startup types of companies. That said, I think as things have now progressed a bit further and, and the space looks a bit more de-risk, you're starting to see some interest from the larger pharma companies. But let me ask one, one question of Steve, just because the way I'm, I'm relieved that Big Pharma's not involved, because I think the way Johnson & Johnson developed S-ketamine without psychotherapy was a suboptimal way to do it. And I think that a lot of these ketamine clinics are first off using generic ketamine, which is just as good or, or better than S-ketamine, but they're combining it with psychotherapy. So when we do see Big Pharma, they're looking for pharmacological treatments separate from therapy, which means that you need more of them. It's a profit maximizing way for pharma, but it's not outcome maximizing. So I'm curious, does that seem? Well, in, in, the, in the defense of big pharma, which I, I generally am not cast in that role, it's not entirely their, their, their fault because there's no FDA pathway that's, that sort of exists. I mean, you've created one with uh, uh, your studies with PTSD, but um, I can't think of a pathway for a combined you know, psychosocial and psychopharmacologic treatment that previously had existed. So it requires you know, taking, making extra effort and persuading the FDA to accept something in that context. But one other thing, uh, just in terms of Steve's comments, um, first, I would, and I'm not taking issue with you, I'm taking issue with the general critical attitude of the public and the scientific and medical community that mental illness has had, you know, no innovation since the prototype mood stabilizing, antipsychotic, antidepressant agents. That may be true to an extent, but um, our sister discipline, neurology, I mean, give me a break, L-DOPA for Parkinson's disease, ALS, Alzheimer's, um, you know, that hasn't uh, attracted criticism and it hasn't stopped, you know, development in those areas. And I think what it comes down to is the brain's hard. Brain diseases are an order of magnitude more, more, more difficult. Um, sure. Yeah, I think psychiatry, to your point, is not alone in, in the challenges to innovation. And I think it's also not even limited to the brain. I think uh, the brain scientists may just be a bit more uh, honest uh, about what we think we know uh, relative to some maybe over-optimism in other fields of medicine. Well, but if you look at, if you look at more morbidity mortality figures or other indices of, of health, um, the 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 results in oncology, cardiovascular, infectious, I mean, they're quite impressive. So uh, I'm, I'm not saying they're smarter or better in those, but the thing is, is the brain is just tough. I mean, you know, cancer used to be a death sentence. Now it's survivable in many cases, except for the more extreme like ovarian or pancreatic. But, you know, forget about it if you've got glioblastoma. I mean, there's just nothing that... So the other thing that uh, you nicely uh, avoided responding to is the fact that the serious science that usually the NIH funds, not that their portfolios are representative of what you know, the population needs, but uh, they've been missing in action. And I, I called my former trainee, now my father and protector, uh, you know, a source of, of NIH support, Josh Gordon at the NIMH. And I said, Josh, you know, you're not funding any psychedelic research. He goes, yeah, I know it's a problem. Um, so the federal government has has a ban on psychedelic funding psychedelic research, uh, at least currently. 
Well, not really, not really. There's, there's not a prohibitive ban. And Rick is entirely right about the fact that it wasn't so much what psychedelics did bad as much as not that they did right, but it was the Nixon administration and their kind of paranoid and uh, authoritarian you know, attitude and, and, and actions that they took. But Rick, let, let me pose a, a, a question to you in a different vein, which is, okay, uh, we have this class of substances that came to the scientific and the uh, Western secular population's attention uh, kind of serendipitously and created a big stir that could have you know, gone on to you know, lead to great things, but you know, got stopped because of the confluence of events and the political machinations associated with it. But now we have another chance and they're being pursued in these multiple ways with the traditional FDA route to drug development for an indication, but then more broadly, the possibility of decriminalization, legalization, you know, access in a broader, uh, less restricted way. So as regards that and your thesis about the fact that if people had the experience that these were able to confer uh, that it would have a positive salutary effect and thereby benefit society and in humanity. So what is the evidence for that? The evidence for that is primarily the experience that people, smart people, thoughtful people, wise people, like prompted uh, Aldous Huxley to write what he did and uh, the passage I opened the program with. What evidence is there beyond that that it actually can fulfill those uh, assumptions? Well, that's a good question. I mean, if you look right now, we're humanity is like lemmings over the cliff. We're engaged in massive denial about climate change, and we're not doing what we need to do that. We're seeing the consequences of that. We're seeing the rise of authoritarianism. We're seeing the crushing of uh, Western liberal democracies in, in many different places. The democracy is under threat here in the U.S. So it, I, I can't say, oh, we've got this little um, utopian uh, corner over here that's uh, psychedelically informed. And so what is the evidence that psychedelics, I think part of my evidence comes from Robert, a different Robert Mueller, who was the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, the mystic of the UN. He wrote this book in 83, Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality, about how what we need as humanity is that we have uh, United Nations to mediate conflicts between countries. A lot of those are religious based. A lot of those are fundamentalist based. And we need to move to a different kind of mystical spirituality where people have this core identification as being part of the planet. But, but Rick, 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 that isn't evident. I'm, 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 you know, I'm doing my job as being okay. the, the scientific uh, moderator. That could be the most enlightened, accurate opinion of, yeah. you know, that exists, but it's not, it's not evidence. Well, the world is in a horrible place right now, a difficult, challenging place. So, uh, what evidence can I say that the psychedelics and the use of it over the past 50 years have made things better? There, there's also bubbling up all sorts of um, different approaches towards people being able to get over their fears, their anxieties, to focus on the issues of the day. There, there's a, a majority, actually, that's interested. We have a minority controlling the majority here in America because of uh, voter suppression and the electoral college and various things. So what is the evidence? Well, we have the evidence writ small in therapy studies. Psychedelics are able to help people cope with stuff that they couldn't cope with before or get out of stuck patterns or get out of rumination, get out of depression. So we have more and more increasing scientific evidence on an individual basis that 
psychedelics are helpful. We have a little bit of evidence, you could say, from the Native American church or the Unyao de Vichel, the ayahuasca churches, that they help people who have substance abuse problems in their communities work through that. And that's kind of a group setting. But what kind of um, consciousness, you could say, um, what was the impact of the astronauts from looking at the earth from space and the pictures on the front of the whole earth catalog and all that we now understand, you know, this um, incredibly fragile life on earth that we're all connected. What impact has that had on global consciousness? It's hard to put a finger to it, but I think it's had an important impact that people understand we're part of this bigger system. And I think psychedelics do that as well and a lot cheaper than shooting people up in space. Yeah, well, I, I think you make a lot of very good points, um, most of which I, I would agree with, particularly that you know the world's having uh, a lot of challenges uh, currently, and and it seems to be a lot of which is self-inflicted. Um, but the question that I would ask is, how do you move from, you have this unique class of substances, and, and you want to bring them to bear uh, in the maximal way possible for the benefit of, of humanity, how do you do that in a way that's measured and is going to be acceptable to the variety of stakeholders and 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 governmental authorities and you know the way that's the toe in the door is the fda approved medical indications but we we know that they're potentially able to do much more so how do you do that experimentally and i would say that there's three sort of proximal. So in any study, as Steve well knows, you, you need to have a protocol, you need to have your hypothesis, you have to have your primary measures of effectiveness, your outcome measures. So if you were going to apply this to the, the broader use of psychedelics for the humanitarian reasons you mentioned, um, one could say, well, you know, there's value that these bring to potentially bring to an individual in terms of being able to cope with the challenges and the stresses and day-to-day -day living and so forth and so on. And then there's also the fact that collectively they could have a uh, an effect on individuals, but also uh, reified to the societal level to mitigate the social problems that we're beset with, whether it's you know, violence, whether it's racism, whether it's poverty and distribution of wealth, et cetera. And then you know, thirdly, you could say, as some people have suggested, that you know these substances have an effect on the brain, the mind that actually enables people to feel this kind of universality, this connected with this, maybe even on a spiritual way. So there's there's different uh, kind of measures uh, that could be designated for any type of experimental testing or or demonstration of the efficacy, and then you have to think of a way. How can you do that? Um, how can you sort of carry out such a, an experiment? And otherwise, it becomes true believers based on you know, their personal experience, their sort of extrapolation from that to what other beneficial descriptions of, of, of ideologies or things that could be useful from a, a social progress standpoint. Um, and uh, the problem is, is that, you know, just like we can't get to any agreement on vaccination, you know, how are we going to get to agreement on stuff like that? Well, Jeff, I, I you know, I, I worry, you know, for the moment, at least, that that's a bit too grand. And maybe I think too small. Maybe this is why I'm not Rick. I'm just Steve. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think about right now we have millions and millions of people that are suffering with depression, with PTSD, with 
related mental health conditions that are not well served with current treatment options. And to your point earlier, we've been able to move the needle a bit with cancer. People are, are living with those conditions. They're not dying within the rates that they were in the past. Well, people sure are still dying all the time from things like depression and PTSD, and they are not well served by current treatments. Now, there are many more people than those with treatment-resistant depression who could potentially benefit from psychedelics. We don't know, we need to test that, we need to measure it, but potentially there are many more. For a lot of those people who potentially stand to benefit from expanding their minds, seeing a connection to the greater world, to, to acting in, in more collectivist rather than individual ways, et cetera, for a lot of those people, Psychedelics are already effectively legal and available, right? A lot of those people are accepting of those experiences, have the means to go to a legal setting, a retreat, a spa, whatever it is. Uh, they have little fear of, of arrest or prosecution. But I think instead of, you know, people of color or, uh, you know, even some members of my family who would be unlikely to try psychedelics, without the imprimatur of regulatory approval and being covered by an insurance company. And for them, these substances aren't legal and they're not available. And yeah, but, so but, 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 you're, but you're, you're, you know, you're not going to get an FDA pathway to treating the worried well or treating people who are, who are you know, intolerant, racist, uh, prejudiced, uh, uh, greedy, whatever. You're not, you're not, right? But in the meantime, there are people with diagnosed mental health conditions who are dying of these conditions. Absolutely. And perhaps we need to focus on them first. And, and others, again, have access through other pathways. Yeah, I, I would say simultaneous. But let me say there is evidence from Peter Hendricks and uh, Matt Johnson, who've done these large-scale population surveys. So I have right up on my screen, you can't see, Journal of Psychopharmacology, 2015. Classic psychedelic use is associated with reduced psychological distress and suicidality in the United States adult population. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, this is not psychedelic psychotherapy. This is just, have they used psychedelics in the past illegally, underground, who knows, mixed with what other things, and it's associated with reduced psychological distress and suicidality. So these are population-based uh, surveys and, and evidence, I would say, to suggest that if we, and if we can do this in the way that um, both Compass and MAPS are trying to do to bring this out in medicine with trained therapists under supervision, and then have that be widespread. Um, you know, I, I heard the other day that I just read the, that there's over a, a estimate over a thousand ketamine clinics. And I think there'll eventually be 6,000 or more psychedelic therapy clinics. And once we can deliver this therapy to large amounts of people with depression, with anxiety, and then with their families and with other people who are, you would call the worried well, um, if we can expand it, I think we can have we can magnify these kind of population effects that are being identified in these large-scale surveys. Yeah, uh, I agree. And, and in case I, I haven't uh, reflected that in my comments, I'm actually trying to help you in this uh, more, you know, kind of uh, messianic uh, <laughs> mission. But I, 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 what, what I, I'm sort of trying to get at is that even though it sounds like throwing cold water or kind of uh, a, you know, trying to be the the voice of uh, um, pessimism, there's an experimental way to do it. So, you know, when you, when you do public health things, whether it's, you know, hand washing, sterile technique, fluoridation of water, uh, so forth, like a population wide studies, 
one could actually do the kind of things that what the, the study that you were citing was a, was a good study, but it's basically kind of a naturalistic opportunistic study as to a prospective population-based study. So there is an experimental pathway. It's just, it requires time, funding, and so forth. And as you said, um, you know, with the urgency of dealing with problems sooner rather than later and the lack of the government, you know, allocating resources in the most enlightened way, you know, it could take uh, an awfully long time. Yeah. Now that survey I mentioned was based on 190,000 people from surveys conducted NIDA funded national survey on drug use and health. But I will say that we're trying to do a study with Israelis and Palestinians who are doing ayahuasca and MDMA together. And we're at the stage now of trying to figure out what metrics do we use to see if they're really making progress and how they see the other. And so that that's the stage that we're at now is trying to figure out what metrics we've spoken to um, Dan Ariely, who's done some computer-based app-based games of trust and things that you could maybe do before and after. And again, these are the people that are not the hardcore haters. They're the ones that are willing to be in these mixed spaces, but we are trying to do this kind of, but it would start with 20 or 30 people. It's not going to be, you know, hundreds. No, no that, and, and that's fine. I mean, you're basically, your, your sample size is only determined or, or required uh, to meet the needs of your statistical power. So if you can demonstrate an effect in that, then that's just as good as you know having a, a you know, hundred thousand patient sample. But yeah, and, me, and, and I'll just say, let, let me. With, it's not just the drug. That's what I want to try to communicate. That I'm not like the true believer in that way. If, for the Israelis and Palestinians doing ayahuasca and MDMA together, it's encased in the ceremony. It's there's preparation, there's integration afterwards. The drug is only part of what they're doing. So I don't want to leave the impression, just give people a drug and all this stuff comes from Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was, uh, um, you know, your point with the ketamine clinics and, and, and Jay and Jansen's, you know, development of S-ketamine. But let me, let me turn by way of getting to the methodology to an intermediate point, which has to do with kind of the scientific definition of a psychedelic. So strictly speaking, if you use pharmacologic criteria, some of the drugs that are gaining uh, favor or being studied aren't classical psychedelics. Ketamine, uh, MDMA, um, Ibogaine. Um, so how do you, Steve, reconcile that? Well, how do I reconcile that with what? With the with there being early signals for all of them, despite- well, First, first the, the term is being used uh, somewhat uh, broadly. Um, and secondly, if you're thinking of these, so, so for example, antipsychotics, all work presumably, except for some of the very newer experimental ones, through a common property which is focused on the D2 receptor, antidepressants sort of similarly. So, how do you how do you reconcile considering these as a single class that have utility in the same way that one would have hypothesized the utility of this class of drugs when they're they're really different agents? Well, I think language matters, and we, and we do need to be specific, right? Certainly, at least in terms of. But my point uh, is, we're not being specific. Well, it depends who you mean by we, but uh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I mean, if you go on Maps website, and and I, I think you know Rick Rick does this, you know, fully aware, but just not being bound by you know the more formal conventional pharmacologic uh, rules. Well, I what I'm bound by the definition of psychedelic, which you spoke about at the very beginning of mind manifesting. And that doesn't speak to mechanism or which serotonin receptor subtype or anything like that. It's about mind manifesting. So for me, dreams are psychedelic. Dreams are mind manifesting. Hyperventilation, meditation, these are mind manifesting techniques. So 
I think the the distinction between which are classic psychedelics, which are not, you know, ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic, but one tenth the dose it can be very mind manifest. So I think it's uh, it's not a particularly. But that that that's uh, excuse me for saying that that's kind of a made up, you know, sort of self determined definition. Um, it's not it's not something that scientific nomenclature normally goes by. So for example, okay, ketamine, you could argue based on its clinical effects uh, on mentation has a, an effect which you, not identical, but you could say, which approximates what the classical psychedelics do. MDMA on the other hand is, uh, is, is different and it would be hard, I think, to you know, consider it a psychedelic based on this mind manifesting definition. It's really an empathogen, right? Well, no, I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm fine with whatever words you want to use for it. And I, but I think that it does have empathy. It does promote uh, the release of oxytocin. Uh, the, it enhances therapeutic alliance, but there are uh, mind manifesting. The, the most mystical experience of my life, ironically, was on MDMA. And it was kind of, you know, and, and people have very spiritual thoughts sometimes on MDMA. It's just in a different way than with the classic psychedelic. So, I, I don't see much, uh, but I'm fine. However, you want to. It's really an empathogen or an antagonist. That's okay. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, uh, again, it's not me trying to uh, argue or criticize with you, or trying to help you. But it, that that sounds, you know, if you if you try and present that to a group of kind of scientists or even regulatory, it sounds too loosey goosey. Well, uh, well, the don't care about it. The regulators look at your data from your particular study, from your particular drug, and whether you call it a psychedelic, the whole thing about empathogen and attactogen was to try to avoid the criminalization of the therapeutic use of MDMA. Back when the DEA moved to criminalize it in 84. And we said, oh, this is not like psychedelics. This is a different drug. This is, you shouldn't criminalize it like it's LSD or psilocybin. Of course, they went ahead anyway and did that. So, so uh, well, first I want to get Steve's input, then I'm going to come back to you. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Rick. I think you were about to say before that you don't bring a term like psychedelic to a regulator. You're bringing your specific compound for your specific indication. Now, personally, I'm, I'm not that interested in psychedelics. I've, I've personally benefited from them, but the, the concept of psychedelics isn't something I'm attached to. I'm, I'm interested in alleviating suffering and addressing the unmet needs of people suffering from mental health conditions and more broadly. And if, if that compound might be classed as a psychedelic appropriately or otherwise, it's, it's sort of secondary. Okay, so um, you made the point uh, that, and, and this is the case for your uh, protocol for Compass's psilocybin trials as well, is that it's not just, you know, uh, Doc in a box writing a prescription. It's it's really a combined psychotherapeutic, pharmacologically assisted uh, treatment. So you've developed in both respects a methodology for how the guide or how the therapeutic setting or what the the therapeutic process is for the individual in the context of the psychedelic uh, intoxication. How was that methodology developed? It was to some degree, common sense and improvisational and extracting from what may have been used, you know, just in previous um, settings by everything from shaman to self-styled therapists? Or how, how did you come about those these methodologies? Well, how did we come about it? So I'll say that, um, you know, MDMA was a therapy drug before it was a party drug. It was under the name Adam. 
and about half a million doses were used that way. And, you know, then it leaked out of that, became ecstasy, became a party drug. So there was a fair amount of evidence, anecdotal evidence, not controlled studies, but about how MDMA could be used. But basically we modeled this, our therapeutic approach, our treatment manual, which is on the MAPS website available for anybody. We modeled it on the work that Stan Groff and others had done with the LSD and psilocybin. So I think there's a lot of similarities between the therapeutic approach that we have that Compass has, except for the main difference is that people spend a lot more time with under MDMA talking to the therapists. And most of the time under the influence of psilocybin or LSD, people are quiet. They're not verbal even for a lot of it. They're you know, listening to music, they're inner focused. And for us, that's about half the time. But we, we developed it basically on a, a few core principles. One was that symptoms, instead of suppressing them, which is what a lot of what modern uh, psychiatric medications do, that they need to come to the surface and be fully expressed. Stan Groff has said the full expression of an emotion is the funeral pyre of that emotion. So that it's the opposite from suppressing, it's letting things out. There's also this fundamental belief that the body we know heals itself below our level of awareness, that there's some kind of order beyond our conscious awareness of what emerges, what manifests. And when mind manifesting drugs are administered, what manifests? There's some kind of order to that and that we should follow that instead of impose on that guided imagery or cognitive behavioral therapy approach. You know, it, it's kind of this supportive approach that's used with LSD, used with psilocybin, the fuller expression of it with encased in preparation and integration. And, and that evolved for us into eight-hour sessions. So there's a lot of these new companies that are trying to develop shorter-acting psilocybin or shorter-acting MDMA to fit into the hour-long therapy session model more easily. And for us, at least what we've seen is longer can be better in certain cases so that we extend this window of op optimal arousal zone, you know, by giving supplemental doses of MDMA. And that's the way ayahuasca is used. That's the way peyote is used. They have more um, rounds of eating peyote or more cups of tea. So for us, we, we evolved the, that uh, eight hour session. And also so many people that are traumatized as adults have childhood trauma. And so this is, we evolved a two therapy two-person model. And I know that Compass is trying to go to a one-person model. And most underground therapists are one-person model. And a one-person model is fine and it can work great. But we decided, I'd say this is the last thing, to optimize therapeutic outcomes. That was our guiding principle, was optimize outcomes, which could mean the fewer MDMA sessions, you know, whereas as opposed to S-ketamine, that's how many S-ketamine sessions can we, can we give you? We wanna optimize therapeutic outcomes. We wanna support what's emerging. We wanna support the expression of it. And through the model of the psyche that Stan and others have developed, if it goes into spiritual experiences or symbolic um, experiences of birth and death or death rebirth or reincarnation, let's say, we treat those as metaphors. We treat what's coming up as metaphors, whether they're true or not, is different from whether they're useful. And so we're going for what's useful and we developed it on the basis largely of um, the early work with LSD and psilocybin. Steve, how about you? Yeah, I agree with, with most of what Rick said. And I think as, as he said, there are a lot of similarities, uh, not there isn't complete overlap, but a lot of similarities between the two models. Our model of psychological support or therapy is also published. It was published uh, back in February earlier this year in Frontiers in Psychiatry. Uh, 
developed you know, based upon a combination of already existing wisdom, experience, uh, some ways that this therapy has been practiced uh, for, for decades now, but also you know, with some other considerations like the fact that uh, the FDA and other regulators don't regulate psychotherapy. And so it does also need to be differentiated from existing models of psychotherapy, which on their own may have therapeutic properties. And so in, in some ways, this is an attempt to do as little as possible while doing just enough to be able to support patients and, and to be able to capitalize on what we think is happening in the brain and this very unique opportunity for growth and change and, and change that hopefully will be quite durable despite the fact that uh, people have these experiences for a relatively short period of time. And, you know, I think also Rick was touching upon this um, when he's talking about two therapists versus one and the duration of the experience and ways that various companies are playing with that right now to, uh, to try to optimize the experience and the therapeutic benefit. There's, you know, there's also important practical and pragmatic considerations here, as, as people will imagine. This is resource intensive and therefore expensive. You know, whatever the drug itself costs, you know, the real cost is, is all the time that is well spent, but nonetheless needs to be paid for uh, that therapists are spending with participants in the research or, or patients once they hopefully get to the wild. And so somebody has to pay for that. And so there's also this fine line of what is the optimal experience for people, what is most therapeutic, what's most durable with what is cost effective and what will be paid for so that I keep coming back to the same term, but I, I believe in it, which is access, broad access, equitable access. Uh, so Rick, um, are there any people that you don't think um, some form of psychedelic therapy uh, should be available or administered to? Well, um, one of the things that you and I have talked about with Elias Dakbar is whether MDMA could be helpful for schizophrenia. And I think that's the kind of thing that should only be researched on an inpatient basis when you have control of all the variables and nothing can, you know, you're watching people, but whether MDMA in particular could be good for schizophrenia, I think there's a possibility. I have not seen psychedelics be helpful for people with bipolar. Now, maybe there, there's one person, uh, Benjamin Mudge claims a certain kind of ayahuasca has helped him with his bipolar. That's one anecdotal report. I think that there are certain people who have um, physical conditions that we're concerned about. Uh, MDMA increases blood pressure, for example. You know, if people have uncontrolled hypertension, we have to be careful about that. So we do have a long list of exclusion criteria, but I think one of the things that, that I have found that the way we're doing the research and the way pharma does the research is that your initial studies are overly cautious. And you're excluding a lot of people. So I would say, for example, at Johns Hopkins, with the psilocybin research, they exclude people with a first degree relative with a major mental illness. And I think that's going too far. I don't think you need to exclude people if they have a first degree relative with major mental illness. You can treat them, but that's a choice. So I think over time, you get it approved from a very limited set of people with a lot of exclusion criteria, and then you need to expand that. So... I would say that the most important thing I'd say is that psychedelics are not for people that don't want to take them, meaning that um, involuntarily giving somebody something, uh, I think is the wrong idea. Or some parents say, oh, my daughter has these problems, you know, that they, they will not go to therapy, but, you know, give them MDMA or give them LSD or psilocybin. I think people have to be willing to go through the difficult parts of this. And if they're not willing, then it's not for them. 
And then we can talk about which are inclusion exclusion criteria. But I think that psychedelics for people who are active substance abusers could be a really good thing. Right now, FDA is saying we have to wait for their two months post detox. Um, ben Sessa and David Nutt did a study in England where it was just two weeks after detox. I think that the FDA is being too conservative about yeah, Well, I mean, the research that was done in the 60s at Spring Grove certainly didn't do that. So that is overly conservative. I can't think of it. But let me just uh, categorically tell you um, the idea, and I'm going to have to talk with Dr. Dakwar, the idea of an NMD antagonist for schizophrenia would be uh, very ill-advised just on pharmacologic grounds. Well, but we can we can debate that, and I can give you chapter and verse. But I, I don't want to I don't want to get um, okay. no no I understand. Uh, but, okay, okay. So I, I can I can give you a, a good explanation. On the other hand, um, classical psychedelics are really not a threat. You know, when when I have patients, and I still am very active clinically, and they talk about or their family members ask about, can they drink alcohol? Can they do recreational things, or are they basically have to be teetotalers the rest of their life? I say, well, look, you know, it's your own judgment, you know, and whatever you do, it's in moderation. But the point is, is that there's some things like, you know, diabetic can't engage in too much consumption of, let's say, uh, sweets or excessive amounts of carbohydrates. Uh, there's certain substances that are more risky than others. And for, for depression, for bipolar, for schizophrenia. So, uh, for example, opiates are not a risk. I mean, other than they would be for anyone else, for people with schizophrenia um, and classical psychedelics do not induce or activate psychotic symptoms in the same way that um, dopamine releasing agents or stimulants do. But MDMA and antagonists would be would be a no, no. But let me turn to uh, Steve and, and the more mundane side of things, the commercialization. So Rick and I were in a debate previously where we had uh, one of the kind of governmental experts on that who uh, gave us chapter and verse. So it's one thing to be talking about these substances in terms of how they've historically existed and uh, how they work when it's given to people in various ways. Um, it's another thing to think about what's the future trajectory? Should they be legalized and commercialized uh, along the lines of what's happening with cannabis? So um, what are your thoughts about that? And are there greater concerns? On one hand, it ensures quality control. So you know what you're getting and it's standardized. On the other hand, you know, once, just like happened with tobacco, once there's a chance to try and tweak the psychoactive properties, does that change the risk balance, the risk benefit uh, balance of the, the substance? Well, first of all, I'm so glad that the mundane subjects are my department in this call. Uh, <laughs> That's why they pay you the big bucks because you're. I guess. It. All right. So I will handle the mundane. Uh, well, let's see. In terms of commercialization and, and how that impacts quality and access and, and how this evolves over time, you know, you, you brought up the parallel with cannabis. And this may be a bit different in the sense that, you know, with cannabis, largely that's, you know, regulated at the state level. And uh, there are medical programs, there's uh, adult use legalization in some states, uh, still remains federally illegal. Uh, we, if we look at the example of Epidiolex, which is a, a CBD-based product, uh, that went through the medical regulatory path and was rescheduled following the FDA approval at the federal level by the DEA. And so that's that's very different than CBD that you might get in some you know retail form. 
uh, in a state where that's or an area where that's that's legal to use. And so it's you know somewhat similar here, at least in terms of compass, you know, because we're pursuing the medical regulatory route. Uh, although psilocybin is a Schedule One substance currently, the, the drug substance that we use, Comp360, is not mushroom-derived. It's a fully synthetic compound. And should that receive FDA approval, then that would require DEA rescheduling at the federal and the state level. And so anybody who had, uh, you know, Compass's product is having exactly the same thing. As, as you know, part of the clinical trials process is not just safety and efficacy, but also quality. You need to make sure that what people are getting is reproducible and the same and, a, and of sufficient purity and quality. Should there be state-level legalization of psychedelics, including psilocybin, and somebody had a mushroom-derived psilocybin, that's a completely different pathway and you know, more difficult to say about quality and, and what the commercialization there may look like. Uh, I mean, I, I guess what I was uh, wondering about also is that much of what's being used are, except for the MDMA and ketamine, are naturally occurring substances. And if you then synthetically uh, derive them and optimize them, uh, what are the potential benefits or risks that could uh, arise uh, from that? So I guess you know that's something that we would have to find out as we go along and hopefully uh, steer a very you know deliberate and prudent course. Yeah, but I would anticipate that should Compass's Comp three sixty psilocybin therapy be FDA approved, the federal rescheduling will be narrowly limited to that product, not to all psilocybin, not to mushroom derived psilocybin. Rick, um, when we had uh, our debate some time back, you were proposing the notion of, of legalization, but with a licensing mechanism utilized. Is that still your recommendation? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and let's just talk about alcohol. I, I think too much of uh, drug policy reform is focused on marijuana, the currently illegal drugs. But let's look at one of the legal drugs. And I'll just say one of the big problems with alcohol is you get people that misbehave under the influence of alcohol. They, they either are um, pulled over for a DUI and then, or they're fighting in a bar or do something like that. And then they get punished for that. But drunk people that want to still can go buy alcohol and then get in the car, even though they don't have a driver's license and kill people, or they can still go to, to the next bar and drink alcohol and go beat people up. So the licensed legalization idea is that you have to demonstrate good behavior. The license is not hard to get, but it's, and it's hard to lose. But if you lose it for misbehavior, you have to go to education, you have to, you know, and there still will always be a black market for people that have lost their licenses, but it'll be harder. Search time will be greater, price will be greater. It will act as a deterrent. So I think licensed legalization is a great idea. And I just wanna say that um, I don't deserve credit for thinking about it. It's Timothy Leary who proposed it and he was talking about a pilot's license and a driver's license, and, and psychedelics should be like that. You get this license. I, I think it's a more moderate, mundane approach to. Um, it's, pra it's a pragmatic approach. Yeah, yeah, I think it makes sense. And I'd be glad to have a license. They have requirements to. I, I think these psychedelic clinics will eventually become routes of initiation for the worried well for, pe for people who want to get a license. That if we're talking about the most safe way to do this, the safest way to do this. You have your first experience under supervision by trained professionals. You know what you're getting into. You know what ego dissolution means, or you know what things emerging means. You're supported in that process, and then you can get a license and do it on your own. And you'll probably be a lot more careful 
than if you just automatically get a license because you've turned a certain age. But but that, but, that, sure. but that mechanism would only work if there's a governmentally approved uh, indication or or means of using it. Yeah, I mean, right now there's not a pathway to having a, a a kind of a spa that provides this kind of experience, like you would go to some place to lose weight. Yeah, that's true. I'm thinking 2035 is when we'll be there. And I think we need a decade of these psychedelic clinics, the same way that medical marijuana preceded marijuana legalization. I think we need a decade or more of psychedelic clinics, not just ketamine, but LSD, well, MDMA, psilocybin, hopefully LSD, 5-MeO, DMT. And then the population gets comfortable with that. And then they realize that the drug war is, is uh, counterproductive and racist, and it's against our national security, and there's a million things wrong with it. And they move to license legalization. So I think it'll take 15 years. So, so Steve, um, coming at it from the other direction, which is as a physician developing something for an FDA-approved therapeutic indication, uh, but knowing it could go well beyond that in terms of making it accessible, how would you like to see or how would you envision this uh, evolving? Well, the thing that always comes to my mind first when I think down the road about something like a clinic providing psychedelic therapy to, you know, to the worry well, to people without a diagnosed mental illness is if insurers don't cover it, then what does that cost and who can afford it? And therefore, it's it's not equitably equitably available. And and so you know that's that's really why I and Compass are focused on the medical regulatory route. Yeah, but I would add, though, that the legal availability is if we train the population for peer support, for understanding, then there's one third of the population that does, doesn't have insurance. There's loads of people that have insurance that doesn't fully uh, equitably cover mental health as well as it does physical health. So insurance is not the panacea, at least the way our current insurance companies are wanting. So for real full access, we need legal access outside of medicine as well. And I think that it will actually be good for the business model of these for-profit companies like Compass and like MAPS. We're actually for-profit in the Public Benefit Corporation. So I think that it, it will, by helping people heal themselves and have their own personal experiences, I think it'll create a greater demand to go to the trained professionals covered by insurance in these psychedelic clinics. A very specific question. Well, what is the age range that you would limit it to? Okay, what I would do is 18 or above, that's what the FDA is doing right now. But the FDA has told us that if we succeed in adults, we must study 12 to 17 year olds with PTSD. But from a legalization point of view, you look to the cultures that have successfully integrated psychedelics, the Native American church, the ayahuasca cultures, the Rastafarians you know, using marijuana, they don't have age limits. I think that it should be illegal for minors unless their parents decide that they can have uh, exposure in whatever context their parents approve. So I think legal for 18 years old without an upper age limit and illegal for 18 years or younger, unless there's a parental override. And that is the way that 23 states right now regulate alcohol, that you have a parental override. You can give alcohol to your kids in 23 states, completely legal. And that's what I think the model that we need to follow. Steve? Hmm. Uh, that's a spicy meatball. <laughs> uh, you know, you, I don't, you, you don't have to eat it if you don't want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll pass on that one. <laughs> so so uh, coming back, uh, Rick, uh, is there a lower limit? I mean, in other words, if, if parental, if, if parents said, I'm, I want to uh, have my child have the experience, is there a lower limit? 
No. Is there a lower limit right now for uh, ADHD or for you know kids? Is there a lower limit for CBD for epidiolex? No. It's being given to babies. I mean, again, it's about there, 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 there's evidence there though. Yeah. Well, again, I th I would much rather have the parents decide than have us come up with some arbitrary thing or say it's up to the government the way it is with prohibition. You mean, so, you mean allow parents to decide like whether they should get the um, measles, rubella, mumps vaccine? Oh, no, I think certain things with vaccines, I think, should be required. But I do believe I was at a Native American church peyote ceremony and a Native American Navajo Indian brought his nine-year-old son to the peyote meeting and he stayed up all night with us. He ate peyote, not as much as the rest of us. He didn't have to follow the strict rules of just sit in one place. But a Native American church member brought his nine-year-old son. Is that something that's scandalous or is that something of wise public policy? I think the family is the locus. I, I want to be now the uh, family values guy. So, you know, I think it should be the family. Yeah. So, let, me, let me just say two things in conclusion, um, which is one, I admire, you know, sort of the um, motivation and what you know, you've done in terms of uh, bringing us this far and also Steve for, you know, putting uh, venturing into the private sector to move uh, these substances forward in a way that could be beneficial because I see great uh, potential in terms of their utilization in conditions for which we don't have optimal treatments. On the other hand, uh, I think that the enthusiasm of uh, the non-scientific advocates is something that in and of itself, even with the anthropologic uh, evidence and the uh, observations from communities that have used them without injury and with ostensible benefit, that can't, can't really pass for what is the rigor of evidence that's required to ensure that it can be used for all of the things that we you know, potentially envision it. And that's, I think, the, the big question is how yeah, we- uh, Jeff, there's no rigor behind justifying prohibition. Where is prohibition and the drug war well, I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not advocating prohibition. No, 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 I know you're not. I know you're, I'm just saying that, that we have policies that, that get well, that, you know, nobody, nobody, could, nobody could possibly accuse, you know, governments and including <laughs> our government of enlightened thinking. So uh, that's your. Well, I'm just saying we've got a status quo that didn't get produced through evidence. And so requiring evidence to get rid of a status quo that is manifestly failing, it seems like too high about. That's right. Well, yeah, you're right. And you have the historical precedent of, al of alcohol prohibition. You know, there's no evidence that it was just we give up. You know, they want to drink, let them have it. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, and I'll try and wax profound here, is that there's a little bit of uh, a Promethean flavor to this, which is, you know, the Greek myth Prometheus who brought, he was given fire by the gods and he sort of brought it to hum humans too quickly and too in a too unrestricted a fashion. And it led to all manner of bad as well as the good that it was originally intended and capable of. And that's my basic concern is that we don't we don't we don't screw this up again. But but it was what Steve said earlier is that these drugs are already out there. People have access to them. You know, it's not that they're not there. They're, they're that's right. That's right. And so we definitely should be decriminalized. And then the access is too limited and the quality control too, too uncertain. And so it's definitely not optimal. But the other thing is, is all the people that should be getting it aren't necessarily able to get it. And it's those that you want to have, you know, provide access to. So 
you know, the question is, is how do we get, you know, as Grain Gretzky says, how do we skate to where the puck's going to be? Yeah, that, that's one of uh, George Goldsmith's favorite sayings. Well, listen, uh, it was a, a wonderful discussion. I want to thank both of our guests, uh, Steve Levine, the uh, president uh, of Compass, or actually the medical director of Compass. Or what is it, Steve? Yeah, Vice president of patient access. Yeah, that's Thanks the, for trying to promote me. That's the important role. <laughs> Give this guy a raise. And uh, Rick Doblin, the uh, founder of MAPS and uh, leading uh, advocate for the development and broadening the access to psychedelic uh, substances. So thank you very much. This is Dr. Jeffrey Liebman of Columbia University speaking to you and leading this discussion of Shrink Speak.